Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 283. Being that tonight and tomorrow is Chof Cheshven, the birthday, the beginning of the 160th birthday of the Rebbe Rashab, so we'll be focusing on that. It's also Meyashona Centennial, 100 years of the, of the Rebbe Rashab's Histalkus, Tov Reshpei, Tov Shinpei, 5680, 5780, on the day of Beis Nissen. This program is especially dedicated by Yitzchok ben Leia and Rivka Vika Basrochel and their children Rus, Nicole, and Michael, and especially in honor of the Rebbe Rashab. Before we get into it, let me just make a few announcements. There's some new developments. So at the request of many of you, we try to have My Life Citizen Supplied on every possible platform. We have it on YouTube. We have it on all the podcasts. You can subscribe to it in any way. It's all free. Now we've also added WhatsApp. So if you'd like to subscribe to WhatsApp or receive the notice each week and be able to actually view it on your phone, text the word subscribe to 973-936-9572. Again, text subscribe to 973-936-9572. As I said, this is an addition to other platforms. With that said, let me make another housekeeping announcement because the question that some people have asked, they asked about where can they find My Life is Supplied. So hey, let me read the question. Hello, thank you so much for your weekly classes. They are perfect for what our generation needs and I really appreciate it. This is my first time writing a question but it was on my mind for a little bit. I understand now that there's another Chabad website anash.org. I'm wondering why you do not air there. From what I read up, this website is endorsed by Rabonim and follows certain guidelines as opposed to other websites, which from my understanding is not. After the whole open mic episode, I felt somewhat uncomfortable going onto other websites. On the other hand, I saw that you constantly aired your weekly classes there, giving me in my mind that the website is really fine. Well, I'm not in the, in the position of Rabonim, I will just say the following. We spoke about it back then. We broadcast everything on YouTube, and it's all embedded on our site, chassidahsupply.com. Now, if you know technology, today you can embed that anywhere. So whether it's one website or another website, anaj.org receives and other other websites receive this feed, and they can, at their discretion, post it. So if you really want them to post it, I would encourage you to speak to them. We don't have control who's going to post it, who's not going to post it. So we put it out there. It's available, as I said, on many, many platforms. Any website on earth can frankly take the YouTube link. It's called an embed link that's linked into the site, and they can see that, and you can view it there live or archived. So I just want to also mention, I don't want to get into decisions of these type of things, websites and so on. Uh, my position on the matter is every website is a, it is a, a perfect platform for spreading chassidus and Yiddishkeit. Obviously, there are websites that are hepachateda and websites where one shouldn't go to altogether. But in general, the more you can spread, the better it is. And that's the way, that's why technology was created for that purpose. Okay, that's just an opening. And with that, I say as well, chassidusupply.com is our unique and exclusive website for this program and for other related resources. It's a new site relatively. There you can also ask any question that you'd like to uh, ask completely anonymously on the forum there. 
as well as view archived programs, as well as all the essays from all the years of the essay contest, plus, as I said, other resources. So with that, let's go to Chav Cheshvin. Chav Cheshvin, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rebbe Rashab, Shalom Deber, the son of the middle son of the Rebbe Marash, who so was born on Chav Cheshvin, the year Tofresh Chav Aleph. So this would be the beginning of the 160th year of the Rebbe Rashab. I take the cue from the Rebbe himself. In Tofshin Mem, which was the beginning of the 120th year, the Rebbe spoke at length about 120 years, even though it would really Tofshin Mem Aleph would be the end of the, 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 the real 120th birthday. But the beginning of it begins now. So that's a milestone. As I mentioned, it's also the fact that this year is a centennial. When the Rebbe, the centennial of any of the Rabbein, the same with the other Rabbeim, by the Rebbe this was a major milestone. So this year you can say is a very unique year connected to the Rebbe Rashab. Of course, closer home in a way. Uh, all the Rabbeim are close to home, but closer to our generation. The Rebbe's Nesiyas, 70 years ago, Tavshin Yud. And the Rebbe Rashfridik Rebbe assumed leadership again 100 years ago. So you have 100 years, 70 years, and other milestones that are 160, the beginning of the 160th birthday. So let's talk about the Rebbe Rashab a bit, especially that the concept of Chassidus applied, my life Chassidus applied, that the Rebbe Rashab plays a key role, of course, in the dissemination of Chassidus. But one, the Rebbe Rashab is called the Rambam of Chassidus. As the Friedrich Rebbe explained, because that's the Rambam. He took Kolatere, he took all the entire Tere and organized it in a very accessible and user-friendly way. These are my words, but that's the, the gist of it. The Rebbe Rashab did the same. All the sugis of Chassidus that the Alter Rebbe, of course, established and developed by the Mitla Rebbe and the Tzemach Tzedek and the Rebbe Marash, the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab gathered it all together, not just gathered, but explained it, and especially in the Tuham Sheikhim Samach Vov, and even more so in Ayin Beis. And what is the theme of Ayin Beis? Keser. As the Tzemach Tzedek said when the Rebbe Rashab was born, that two kes, two, kes, two levels of Keser. Chof, Cheshvin, Chof is Rosh Hateva's Keser, the 20th of Cheshvin, and the year Tofresh Chof Aleph, which is also spelled Kisra, which in Aramaic, Keser, with an Aleph, Aramaic Keser is Kisra, Kisri Allah, the two levels of Keser, as the Rebbe explains in a very powerful Sikha, on Shabbos Pasha Vayeda, Chof Cheshvin, Tofshin Mem Zayin, which is printed already and edited by the Rebbe in Sefer HaSikha's Tofshin Mem Zayin, he explains at length the connection between the two, but in brief, the whole point of Chassidus, the whole point of Kabbalah, the whole point of Teiri, you can say, is to be an interface, is to teach us how to interface between the divine and existence. And this is the central theme of Ayin Beis that begins with Keser, and throughout the Hemshech, Keser is the operative word, which the Kabbalistic term for interface, for Memutza. Memutza between Einsof and Elam Haza and Nivroim. That is always Machadish. There was a big argument among Mukubalim that is documented and collected by the Ramak, Ramayusha Kardaviru in Pardis. She has a whole gate, a shar, that's called Ima Keser Hua Einsof. Is Keser Einsof? There were Kabbalists that felt it is Einsof, there are Kabbalists that felt it's not. This is explained in Vayelech Samachvav, uh, which is based on Mamorim of the Tzemach Tzedek, based on the Alter Rebbe's Mamorim, but the Tzemach Tzedek in Eretere in Yonim now printed is the basis of Ayelach Samarvov and explains this disagreement. There comes the Arizal and he's Machriya. 
he reconciles and says, Kesed have both elements. Kesed has Atik and Arich. Atik is Einsof. Tachteinu in the words of the Arizal, the lower level of Einsof. And Arich is Reish HaNetzolim, the beginning of the emanations of the ten spheres of Atzilus. But they're both within Kesed. That's what the Arizal was Mechadish. Why is this so relevant? Because in the interface of our, the divine with existence, the dilemma is at some point God is Ein Sof, and even beyond Ein Sof. Existence is, absolutely has a Sof. We have, a, we have parameters and definitions, a defined, limited world. So how can these two ever meet? So if Kesser is Ein Sof, we meet on Kesser's terms Ein Sof, but in some way we have to shed the personality, the, the redefined and limited personality of existence. If Kesa is not Ainsof, so then we talk and connect to a divine dimension, but not to the highest levels of the divine, because Kesa is one of one of the spheres. Comes that Izal and says, no, both are true. We can connect on both levels. We have the Ainsof in Atik, and we have the connection to existence in Arik. Comes the Rebbe Rashab in Hamshachayim Beis, and since we're this Rebbe Rashab, we're honoring him with a piece of Ayim Beis, where he explains and asks the question, but the question is not fully answered. Where do Atik and Arich meet? The question only carries over because Atik and Arich, if Atik represents Einsof, the infinite divine, let's call it transcendence. And Arich represents existence, imminence. Where do the two meet? And the Rebbe Rashab, in an elaborate, powerful way, explains the concept of that there's the supra-conscious intelligence that, that connects Atik and Arich because it travels between Atik and Arich, it has two levels. And that's how we ultimately connect. That through a human being's imagination and a human being's mind, we can transcend our own emotional subjectivity and connect to something which is beyond us without annihilating ourselves. And then we channel that into our imminent, into our panemius. So basically, Kesu is a makif, but in the makif itself, there's the two levels. There's one that's a transcendence that relates to existence and a transcendence that's beyond. And Chach which is the superconscious intelligence within each of us and also in the higher worlds, makes that bridge. If you want to learn more about it, you go into Ayim Beis, you go into the middle of volume uh, one, where he talks about this basically in the chapters 340, 350 in those chapters. So the Rebbe Rasha, born on Chav Cheshven, in the year Kisra, himself, his date of his birth, both the date of the month and the year, reflects the essence of what he came to explain, which is the essence of all of Chassidus, the Rambam of Chassidus, to bring the two together, the two levels of Kesar, which in essence brings together existence and the divine. What it means in our personal lives is even if we, in our mundane world, in our mundane pedestrian lives, we're able to connect to the highest levels of transcendence without annihilating our personality and our existence. How to do so, of course, is the entire Aveda of work of a person climbing the ladder, the stepping stones, through the entire Seder Ishtalshus, from the lowest levels all the way up to the highest. But that fusion is possible in the fullest possible way. And as you learn, especially in Ayim Beis, you, you learn exactly all the stepping stones and all the different interfaces of how we achieve that. So here we honor the birthday of the Rebbe Rashab, the beginning of the 160th birthday and in the year of the centennial Meishan, 100 years from his Estalkus, that what we honor is what he taught us. The Chassidus gave us the tools, the Asis, that the Refridic Rebbe and the Rebbe continue to develop and actually turn into a practical action plan 
of taking the highest levels of divine and bringing them into existence and allowing us to relate to those levels. The second thing that Ebed HaShab did, among many things, but we'll just stick to two main ones, is the Siastus, establishment of Temchet Mimim. Essentially a breeding ground, a training ground for an army. Muhammad's Beis David, Hayyetzel Muhammad's Beis David. An army, but not an army that would fight a physical war, but a spiritual war. A war that would bring Judaism and the dynamic and passion and excitement of Yiddishkeit in a relevant way to all corners of this world, which is the essence of your Futsa Menesech spreading the wellsprings to the outskirts. And what the Rebbe did was take the soldiers, the men and women that educated in the education system that the Rebbe Rashab initiated in Temchet Mimim, and turned that blueprint of creating an interface, as the Rebbe says in the first Maimur Basilagani, Vayikra Kel Elam, that Avram went around and showed everyone that godly, the world is really a godly place, that is the mission. So we both have the philosophical and psychological underpinnings of it in Chesidus, meaning the shkofe, the present, the ideology of it, and then also the implementation with the yeshiva, which actually trains and educates students to take this ideology and turn it into a practical blueprint, a practical application that each of us can live by, each in their own level, and prepare the world for Mashiach. And this is what we honor. Now, I've spoken about Chav Cheshman in previous years, and I'll give you some cross-references. I know for those that are listening, podcasts and so on, it may be difficult, but I still want to give cross-references in case you want more information, and those are in episodes 88, 138, 187, and 233. So Chav Cheshman represents a very powerful key day in the evolution and the development of Chassidus, especially in giving us the tools to do what we have to accomplish in our mission. And hence the connection to Chassidus applied, my life Chassidus applied, taking the Rebbe Rashab, how he took all of Chassidus, channeled it, and of course through the words of the Friedrich Rebbe, and, and of course the Rebbe, the Deirashvi, language that we can then now translate and present to people of all walks of life, even those that may not have all the background and knowledge and information on the deepest levels. Being that their question came and connected to Rebbe Rashab, those are a topic I've talked about, but someone asked the question, so let me just quickly refer you to where I discussed it. This is the question about Rebbe Rashab's visit to Sigmund Freud. I heard that the Rebbe Rashab once spoke to Sigmund Freud. Was the Rebbe Rashab influenced by his meeting with Freud or any other psychological psychologist or philosopher? We know that the Rambam was influenced by Aristotle. Is it also true that modern Jewish ideas were influenced by modern philosophers? Okay, so there's two parts to the question. First of all, regarding the Rebbe Rashab and Freud, I spoke about at length a number of times in episodes 91, 94, 199, and addressed this detail as well. But I just want to make reference here like this, that Abayim are Teda. Teda does not need not Aristotle and not Sigmund Freud and not any other thinker or philosopher to base its ideas. Nevertheless, Chochmah Begoyim Tamin. There is Chochmah Begoyim. That's why you find in Hilchus Kiddush HaChedish that we use calculations at the Greeks or um, others made medicine, developments in medicine, astronomy, and so on, because there are chachamim there, and there are wise people, and therefore you can derive from it. But that is also part of how God planted his wisdom everywhere. But especially when it comes to hashkaf of philosophy, no, we do not take philosophy from, from there. There you can talk about medicine, you can talk about 
um, astronomical mathematics, astronomical calculations. But when it comes to Ashkofet, to our perspective on life, that's what the Tadus, Tadus Chaim. Now, the fact that some Chachamim in the world, Jewish or not Jewish, may have fallen upon certain ideas, I would say is the other way around. They took it from Tadus, direct consciously or not consciously. But the ideas were planted into the world through Tadus, and the Avida Elam. And then, therefore, it made it easier, and there are people who articulated in a very powerful way tailored ideas. So I would not say that the Rebbe Rashab was influenced by Freud, especially when you know the details of the story. He went there for a specific reason, connected to nerves, connected to his hand, and so on, to his arm, and, the, and Freud's advised him, which I don't want to go into now because there's, we, need, we want to use the time well. But look at those other episodes where I discuss it in detail. So no, it was not influenced that does not mean that we cannot read and see sometimes ideas that have parallels and sometimes language. But the core ideas obviously all come from a Teda approach, from either revelation or from the Seichel of Teda that the Rabbeim and all Chachmid, Talmid Chachamim throughout the generations and ages derive from. But at the same time, the Gemara talks about Abchia and others who went to shepherds and others to study, because in order to figure out certain laws in Teda, you need to know the nature of sheep the nature, as I said, astronomical calculations, and Edovin, mathematics, physics, and other things. So there is that using it. The Rebbe has a very beautiful letter. It's printed in the Lekutah Sichas Chelikid Beis, volume 12, in the Hesophis Kedeshim, where he talks about the different levels, how the association between Teda and direct Teda, and how Teda derives something from the wisdom of the, of the so-called Chochmas Ha'elam, the wisdom of the world. But that is already going a little off uh, the, uh, the, uh, the point. So let's now move on to the next. This week is also Pasha Chai Sada. We've talked about Chai Sada a number of times. Again, episodes 88, 138, 187, and 233. But since there's one question that just came in connected to this, I'll focus on one. Chai Sada has many lessons, as always. So we're going to talk about, here's the question about Avram's complete days. So there's a pasuk in this in this in this pasha, a very powerful pasuk. It says, "Avram zokin bobayomim." Avram aged and he came into his days. So of course the question is the redundancy. If he aged, that means he came into his days. What does it add to say bobayomim? Avram zokin bobayomim. So it says that Avram's days were complete. This writer writes, and it's explained that he filled his days and did not waste any time. Is that possible for ordinary people to live that way? And if yes, what would it look like to have a complete day? So let me explain this a bit. Based on Zohar, the Zohar asked the question about the redundancy in this parsha, and says Avram Zakan talks about his chronological. He aged. You know, Avram passed away at one hundred and seventy-five. But Baba Yomim is telling us he came into his days. It means he used every moment of his days. They were complete days. Boy, Yomim Shleiman is the language in the Zohar. He came with complete days. Because you, you, can, you can live 175 years, you can live 120 years, you can live one year, you can live one day, and not necessarily that day was filled with content, that the day was fully utilized. We waste a lot of time. Avram had no such waste of time. Every second was filled, was accounted for. So he didn't just age, but he came with complete days. Chassidus explains every day is a levush, a birur, that's why when you do a mitzvah, mitzvah that are connected to a day, you can't do the next day, you can't do two mitzvahs. So, for example, tefillin. Or carbon. Over the bottle carbone. If the carbon was not brought that day, you can't bring it the next day. You can't daven shakras one day for two days. Because why? 
the mitzvah, why not? You miss the mitzvah, you do the mitzvah, because it's not just the mitzvah, it's the bitter and the refinement and the elevation of the day itself. Time itself needs to be refined. And yeah, and Avram Avinu refined every moment of his day, so he came with complete days. Basically, a day is energy. Just like t- space has its dimension, time has its dimension. The energy of time. Every second is a life. And the second le- moves on, that life is no longer available to you. So you either bring it to life by doing something good, or, in a sense, that second becomes lifeless. Now, the question, how does it relate to us, since it's a directive that comes from Avram, our patriarch, our grandfather, our great-grandfather, every everything the others did, the patriarchs did, is a lesson for us. And have the others within us, just as it says about Moshe Rabbeinu. So we have Avram Avinu's Avramovino's fulfillment of time in the fullest sense of the word. Does it mean we can live 24-7 that way? Each person has to try. We have to always say, We have to always ask, when will we reach when will our actions parallel and live up to the Aveda of the Ovis? That doesn't mean we're the Ovis, they're Markova, but it means, means Markova meaning they were a completely selfless and transparent chariot and channel to the divine but somewhere we each have to find that process in Tov Shalamet and I've spoken about this a number of times Chof Shvat after the, the delegations came from all over the world for the seams of the Sefer of Mashiach Yud Shvat that year 20 years from the Rebbe's leadership 50 years ago basically the Rebbe spoke of Fabrengen before they were going in the different charter to Israel and other places and he sensed that they were all rushing because they were anticipating and they were eager to get to the airport. So the Rebbe gave a talk about Zman. Just the gist of it, I don't want to go through the whole thing because of limits of time, was that Zman means something he heard from the Friedrich Rebbe, that wherever you are in that moment, be there completely. Even if you're five minutes from now, you're going to go somewhere else. Right now, this is, you have to live in that moment. So living in the moment is a taste of the Boba Yomim of Avram Avinu, which means each of us, we waste enough time. Each of us can take each day and say, you know what? I'm going to focus on being a little more Baba Yomimdik. I'm not just going to let the day pass. I'm going to make sure every day has content in it. A day filled with Torah, learning. A day filled with mitzvahs, with prayer, with davening, with helping another. And the more you do it, the more seconds that you do it, the more minutes you do it, the more hours you do it, the more your day becomes filled. You bring to life the life that you're given. So a moment is given to you. It's a life. If you use it, it's, it lives on forever, even though it was just a moment. If you don't use it, God forbid, it's like a lost opportunity. So, like in everything, we have to look for me'ain. How can we, in some way, live up to this standard? That's the lesson. The importance of time. Time management. Okay. Now, there are a few questions that came in that were connected to last week's Pasha. I don't want to wait till next year, so I decided I'll address some of them. And this one is going to be now here. And then there's another one, we'll do, another two we'll do in the Chassidus questions. Treatment of the poor. How does the mistreatment of the poor by Zdoim, which was in last week's chapter, compare to some behavior today? The way the person writes is, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your enlightening and frank weekly shiurim. In last week's Pasha, we learned that one of the grave offenses of the people of Sodom was their treatment of the poor. How does this compare with the current laws in some cities that ban begging 
and the homeless camping on sidewalks and in parks. I heard of one place that even gave citations to those who give money to street beggars. To me, this, is, this part of the parsha speaks directly to this issue. I would appreciate your thoughts on this. Thank you so much. Okay. So first of all, we have to make one major qualification. Saddam was a tr- truly wicked city of the likes that we don't see often or at all. And that's why they were destroyed. So as bad as we may be in our times or any time, Saddam was very unique in the way they mistreated the poor. It wasn't just regulating. It was true abuse in the fullest sense of the word. A selfish, narcissistic city, wicked, cruel, corrupt city, not just with the poor, how they treated guests, how they treated anybody. So that's important too. That does not mean we don't take out lessons from it because the fact that the Torah tells us, as I mentioned, everything in the Torah is a lesson. But I just want to make that qualification. So we have a Torah and halacha, how we treat the poor. First of all, the whole Torah is based on chesed. Avram Avinu had an open tent, inviting guests. And it doesn't say what type of guests. Everyone is welcome. Obviously, we're not talking about someone dangerous, etc., because then you have to protect yourself just as a qualification. So the idea of tzedakah is based on and initiated and originates in Torah by Avram Avinu. Lasa is Dr. Mishpat. And last week's Pasha. And it becomes part and parcel of one of the greatest mitzvahs, Shkula Kenegat Kola Mitzvah. Zdaka is compared to, like if you put it on a scale, Zdaka is equal the weight of all other mitzvahs. And I can go on and on about the virtues of charity. Charity means to, not just in spiritual charity, also material charity, to people who have less. And as a matter of fact, that's why God created people have less, so there should be chesed and charity. As Doim was the antithesis of that. So when we now look at our own behavior today and our cities and state, the United States in general is a benevolent country, very charitable. Charitable has all kinds of benefits, whether it's welfare or food stamps or rent control or other things that benefit those that are less fortunate to help them get on their feet things that are unprecedented in other countries, ones that did not exist. Others have learned from America. At the same time, we're not perfect. There's plenty of faults. And yes, there are places where people don't mistreat the poor. What do you do with the homeless? What happens when there's crime? So I can't go into now an elaborate, comprehensive approach, but if you take the Tater's compassionate approach to people, it's absolutely everything antithetical to them. So yes, when we see certain cities perhaps being severe, we have to look at it. Is it coming from a compassionate place? Is it coming from a, an inappropriate place? I would need to know exactly what is going on, what we're talking about. I know I've read it as well. Is it something that's based on governmental uh, instructions or is it people hurting those that are, are more needy and so on? But in general speaking, generally, yes, we can learn from Zdaim the crimes of how not to behave when it comes to strangers and comes to the needy, come to the impoverished people of poverty, the poor, and also learn from the Tata, the positive lessons. So yes, we can learn much from it. And obviously, compassion and zdok is always can always increase. And yes, there are times we read about, unfortunately, certain laws that probably should be modified. But you have to also remember you have to protect the citizens while you're also helping the poor. That's why we have shelters, helping people get on their feet, get jobs. Because unfortunately, often what happens is, many times, places of poverty and slums can also turn out into dens of crime. So you need to know how to balance it all because you want to protect everybody, 
even the, the poor themselves from each other, at the same time being compassionate. But we would need to hear more details and read, speak about more details to really specifically state this. But thank you for that. I also want to refer you to episode 262. Okay, let's move now to a new series of questions. Since this is timely, we'll talk about it. Lessons from the impeachment hearings. So we all know, headlines everywhere, impeachment, impeachment hearings in the House of Representatives trying to impeach, inquiring and impeaching President Donald Trump. So the question is, what lessons can we learn from the current impeachment hearings? Here's how the person, hi, Rabbi Simon. With the impeachment hearings now going public, which means first it was private, then it went public, I was hoping you could share a lesson in Avedas Hashem that we can learn and apply from this. A lesson from the serving God that we can learn and apply from this. Now initially, I first thought I wouldn't address this because... But on the other hand, we know from the Baal Shem Tov that Rebbe repeated it so many times. Everything you see in here is Ashgacha Pratis, is divine providence, and has lessons. So let me just throw out some thoughts, and I would love to hear if any of you have some thoughts. First of all, there's, of course, the whole despicable partisan and the polarization in this country. That from the moment Trump was elected, there was already talk about impeachment. That does not mean that Mr. Trump, President Trump, does everything is perfect. Far from it. But so with every president, no one's perfect, and now everyone has their mistakes, and everyone has probably things that if you really want to get them, you can probably identify possible impeachment offenses. Because as they say, keep saying, it's not a legal matter, impeachment, it's a political matter. So of course, a party that is against the president, whether it was the, the Republicans against Clinton, or in other situations, Nixon was, was going to be impeached, but he resigned. The Rebbe once said, and other presidents did the same thing or worse, but it was not known or it was not caught. This doesn't justify crimes and doesn't justify things, but you have to remember that when crimes are done, some of them are not so serious, some are more serious than others, and often a lot of politics goes into it. So the first lesson is that morality and ethics are not necessarily based on political agendas. Political agendas can be about who should be in power, could be about personality clashes. Clearly, Mr. Trump is hated by many people, especially in the Democratic Party, and they try to do anything possible to bring him down. Now, if they find something, it may have some legitimacy, it may not have legitimacy. I'm not going to come to any conclusions. You hear, if you go into the media, you'll hear both are. Some say there's no basis for it. The whole thing is a witch hunt. Some say there's a little basis, but it's being overblown. And some, of course, who are behind it say this is the biggest crimes and misdemeanors. I will not pass judgment. I will say as, as an observer and watching that it's quite despicable in general. Because clearly, even those that are the most extreme against, you clearly see it's a personal matter. You clearly see it's more than just right and wrong. Because if it was right and wrong, it would have to be consistent across the board. And I cannot say I trust that. Would I say the opposite? The Republicans, let's be in the other side, they would be trying to attack the president? Possible. That's also possible. They're subjective people, and I'm not taking a side of the Republican and Democrats. Here we're talking about these impeachment hearings. So to me, the first thing we have to recognize, especially those of us that, the, 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 not, I, let me correct myself, not especially those, all of us, what we have to learn is that we have to rise above this. Don't get caught up in the politics and the debates because it's dirty. It's personal. It's subjective. 
on both ends. And in truth, I don't see here a crime that is considered to be uh, what they first call treason, and then they call all kinds of different things. They're busy, inappropriate, should he have done it? Did other presidents do it? You'd have to weigh everything. If everyone has done something similar, so what's going on here exactly? So clearly it's personal. So I think it's the first lesson is to step back and realize this is not objective. Since it's not objective, it's a lesson in life. We should not pass judgment because this is not a moral question here. This is a political one. Whether you want to be involved in politics is your business. I don't want to be. Now, I always remind myself of um, the story with Rabbi Yitzhak Badichevit. And I actually told it the day when O.J. Simpson was acquitted because I was being interviewed and it was Erev Yom Kippur. Erev Yom Kippur, Tov Shinun Hey. And I was being interviewed about my book, Toward a Meaningful Life. So they had told me beforehand, since the O.J. OJ verdict came out, no one's going to be interested in the book, even though it's a good book. Let's push over the interview. So I said, no, I'll talk about that. And I remember sharing this story. I said, while the whole world is so up in arms and everybody's taking sides about O.J. Simpson and his verdict, there was a polarization then as well, I said, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews are preparing for the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And I told the story. Levi Yitzhak Badichev was standing by the Omid. Yom Kippur, or one of the Yom Nidoyim Davening, before he started Yiskadav Yiskadav, she said, the Prussians say that the Prussian king is the greatest. The Russians say the Tsar is the greatest. The French say the emperor, their emperor is the greatest. And I, Levi Yitzhak Masara Sasha say, says, Yiskadav Yiskadav Shmeid Abba. Shmeid Abba, great, great the name of God. So I think this teaches us to realize there's the, the actions of men, which are sometimes petty, small-minded, political, with agendas, hidden agendas, open agendas. So we have to step back, that's lesson number one, and realize we shouldn't be part of the fray. We have a higher calling to, to live up to. So we look at this, and we should see it as part of that. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is on a more specific level, that everybody deserves to be judged fairly. It should not be a political thing. This is already getting involved in it. Is it being judged fairly, or is it simply because the House of Representatives has a majority? If they didn't have the majority, they could not even have proceeded. So what are we talking about? That since you have more power, are you being just? So it's a good lesson in justice. What is justice? Can we expect from these people to be just? I sometimes feel you can because they have their agenda and they're just going as a train. And again, I would say this either way. The, the question here is about these impeachment hearings. I would say it exactly the opposite way if it was a, the president from the opposite party. That's lesson number two. Lesson number three is what this world is so consumed with. Look what it's consumed with. This is the headlines. I mean, I know it's somewhat an extension of point number one that I made. This is the headlines. It's entertainment industry. It's entertainment for most people. There's going to be an election next year. People will vote. So they're positioning and jockeying and, and pivoting in order to either put Trump in a good light or in a bad light. So what is this world involved in? Such, what is it involved in? That's what the headline should be. The headline should be is how we bring Mashiach, how we transform the world and bring the divines of the world. The headline should be Chav Chajrin, that we have here a blueprint of how to transform the world and turn it into real world peace. Meanwhile, all the major issues 
that are important to people, that are important to human lives. I ask myself, what difference does it make to my family, to your family, to your children? All these stuff. So this is what they think is the most important thing. Is it affecting anybody's family, our education, our children growing up in a healthier environment, and so on. So that's lesson number three. I'm sure there are more lessons, but these are the things that come to mind. And um, however it turns, these lessons are, 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 are vital and relevant, and that should be the attitude. Now, as far as President Trump himself, he is the President of the United States, was elected, and that has a certain divine element to it. The heart of kings and, and ministers is in the hands, is in the Yad Hashem, in the hands of God. And we want God to direct our leaders to be more benevolent, to be more compassionate, to be good for the human race, for the American people, for the Jewish people, for Israel. So that's how we have to look at it. Is Mr. Trump living up to that legacy? Is he good for the welfare of people? Is he good for the Jewish people? Which when you're good to the Jews, you're good to the world and others as well. And that's the key thing that we have to... So when I look at this, I say, so what's going on? They're trying to impede. Why don't you look at the whole record of his? What has he done? But that, again, is not on the table. You find one flaw, even if it's a real flaw. That suddenly becomes the dominant element. Why don't you let the American people... Why don't you, uh, why don't you um, uh, advertise yourself? Campaign? Let people know your positions and let people on the merits decide. Are they respecting the people? That's another question, another lesson. Isn't this a democracy where people elect and vote? So you want to influence? By all means, put up advertisements. But using impeachment seems like a low, a, a low, a low ball tactic of trying to hurt the president because you can't hurt him in the economy or in other ways. So those are my thoughts. And this is not a pro-Trump um, statement. It's looking at it in a fair way. Whoever would be sitting in that seat, I would say exactly the same thing under the same circumstances. I want to make that very clear. Okay. If anybody has any further thoughts on this topic, please. It's, uh, it's on the table. And let's hear lessons, lessons that we can learn. As I said, I'm sure there are many other lessons, especially when you get into the nitty-gritty. But let's move on to the next question. So since we're on this topic, the next question saw someone writes about is it appropriate to recite the blessing on a king when we see the President of the United States? I saw a video recently how some people said a brach on the President with Hashem's name, the Shema Malchus. Isn't part of the idea of a king that he has the power of life and death and a President only has the power of life? He can commute or pardon the death sentence, but he can't give the death sentence to an American. The question is whether it's a brach of Atola or not, basically. Is it appropriate to make a brach like that or not? So let's talk about a few points here. First of all, this question has been raised, not just now. Remember, this is not the first president of the United States. He's the 45th president. There are also presidents and leaders of other countries. So the question has been raised by Poskim in the past, and let's just, I'll just cite some of them. The general consensus is, just to get to the conclusion, is that it's not the din of a melech, a president. And I'll just point out that when Trump visited, President Trump visited Israel a number of years ago, this was asked by the rabbis there, and Rabbi Avner and some others came out and said, no. So let's first start with the din. What's the din? The Gemara in Brachis in Nun Chesom and Aleph 58a says that everyone who, anyone who sees a king of the nation should say the bracha, 
he gave from his glory, his honor, to a person of flesh and blood. If it's a melech, a king in Israel, you say, It's a different pasuk, a different bracha. The halacha, Rambam and Hilchus Brachas Yud Yud Aleph, and Shulchan Aruch Erechaim Reishchav Dalat Ches, cite this Gemara as a psagdin. Question is, it was asked when Trump came to Israel, should one go and make that brach if they see him? A secondary question in that is that the Odin is also that you should pursue and look for a king to try to see a king and make this brach. So, regarding both things, the answer was no by the consensus. There are some exceptions, I'll mention that shortly. And the key points made was that what is the, what's the din of a melech? So, some say that a melech must be absolute, everything is in his hands. And complete power, including obviously. Um, yeah. So, this can you say that about a president? This is from Orchus Chaim, the name of Sefer Eshkel, Hilchus Brochus Ace Memtes, and Shal Shuchuva Sarad Baz, Aleph Reish Tzadik Vov. A president does not have such absolute power. First of all, he's elected. Second of all, he, there's oversight. Irrelevant now what the political agendas are. So, so, so based on that, he's not the din of a melech. Another say, in order for him to be a din of a melech, he has to have the power, yes, that, as the questioner asks, life and death. Not just life, but also death. That's the Shal Shuvas Chassam Sefer, Erechayim, Simen Kufnun Tes, 159. The president does not have that power, even though there's the pardon to pardon, but he's not the power to kill, based on a whim or based on just his decree. Okay. Some say the Belach to make the bracha, he has to be dressed in the in kingly garments. He has to be dressed like a king. That's in Shal Shuvas Yechavadas Beis Chavches and Shal Shuvas Van Hogan's Beis Kuflamates. Shuvas Van Hogan's Beis Kuflamates. Then there's also an opinion that to see to make this blessing, the Belach has to be Betechafamai has to be with his entire entourage. That's also from those same sources. So that's why many of Paskind, not just about President Trump or other presidents, but it's Sadat or other presidents and leaders of their country, even those that had more power technically, that the Dara Din Melech, and therefore you don't make the bracha. The question is, do you make the bracha without Shema Malchus? Without Baruch Hashem Alekeinu, Melech Elam, Just Baruch HaToh. Shenosa Mikvede Adam. So the Morgan Avram in Shulchan Aruch there does talk about ministers that are appointed by the king, do you make that? And some say that you don't make, that you don't make Shem Malchus, but you make other brachas. From the Alter Rebbe, because he doesn't say it, and actually the Alter Rebbe doesn't even bring about the Melachim of Israel because of Mashiach. There's no Melach in, in Israel today. But the Alter Rebbe just mentions uh, the, the kings of the nations, but he does not mention this thing, but not make Shem Malchus. So from that, it appears that he doesn't hold that way. This is in the Alter Rebbe in at the end, the last section. Okay, so, based on all this, I must qualify that Rabbi Vyadi Yesev, they say, I looked it up, I'm not sure if there's 100%, but it seems so, that when President Obama came to Israel, he said they should make, they should pursue to see him and make the bracha. But it doesn't, I don't know if he said B'Shem Amalchus or not, meaning with Hashem's name, so that's, that's not clear from what I looked up anyway. So based on all of this, 
it's clear that there are certain halachas of that, that apply to this situation. In general, if it's a suffix, that is a melech. We don't know for sure whether it's a melech because that can be up to interpretation. So in general, suffix brachas lahakil. If you have a doubt, you don't make a brach because brachas generally you, you're uh, you don't you're not machmi you make them. Okay, I think that covers that. I just want to add lechavusa de milsa. Bad Kedish, a sefer, or it's actually a, a letter written by the Mitla Rebbe, it's printed in a sefer called, a kuntas called Bad Kedish. The Mitla Rebbe, when he was being arrested, and by the informers, one of the things that he was rebelling against the king, so in the Bad Kedish he writes about this thing, about the fact that a king, not only do we honor him, but we also make a blessing. And he quotes the blessing there. The Rebbe explains in a footnote there why we say cholak by a melech Yisrael, cholak mikvede, and by a non-Jewish king we say nosa mikvede. Though that's as, as an aside, but I just wanted to mention that. But there we're talking about the Tsar, and the Tsar was clearly a king as the din of a melech, and then you did, you did make the bracha, because remember the bracha is not dependent whether it's a good king or not a good king. If he's a king, this brach is made. So that covers at least a little, uh, the, this subject matter. If anybody has more information they'd like to add, as always, please submit and I'll be happy to share. Okay. Now, since we're on this topic, so here's another question that's re- somewhat related, not completely related. And the question is about non Jews in general. Are non Jews created in the divine image, B'Tselem Alekim? When God said, Nasa Adam Bitsalmenu, that will create a human being in our image, in God's image. Does Adam here include non-Jews? What exactly is divine image? That's one question. Okay. Another related question is: do non-Jews have a soul? Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your wonderful weekly lessons. They bring so much inspiration and teaching to a world hungering for truth and meaning. I've heard that the Rebbe said that the non-Jews have a divine soul. Can you teach us more about it? What is the root of this soul? Does the root of this soul differ from the source of the Jewish divine soul? And if so, how? Does it become enclosed in the body? What does it strive for? Can a non-Jew lose his divine soul due to improper actions? Thanks so much. So I've addressed this at length especially in episode 85, but I will also give you some others, 31, 100, 122, 178, 192, 210, and 281. Now, nevertheless, I will share a few words on this topic. So there was a Yechidus in Tavshin Chav in 1960 where college students asked the Rebbe about this, and the Rebbe said, they said they heard from their professor, Black, that he said they don't have a divine soul. And the Rebbe said, tell, Mr. Bla- tell Professor Black he's wrong. They have a divine spark, it's just different than the Jewish one. And this is based on a Teisvis, and I'll cite you in the Kutisichas, Chelik Yud Gimel, volume 13. There's a whole bunch of footnotes that really help understand this whole subject in page 230. But briefly, yes, they were all created in the divine image. Everybody, we say, Chaviv Adam Shanivra B'Tselem. Which means that, that precious is the person who was created Alekim. Then it says, Chvivin Yisrael, Shinikraim Bonim Lamokim, their children. And Chvivin Yisrael, Shinitlehem 
Kleichem Teira. So clearly, everyone, every human being on earth is created by Tzalem Alekim and comes from Adam and Chav. It's another discussion of 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 chapter 2 in Tanya, based on the Zohar, how, how does that apply to everybody. So there's a Rizal on the matter, which says, because at that time, before Chetet Sadas, it would have all been coming from, um, from it would only have been the Shomish Yisrael. But I spoke about that in previous episodes. So the bottom line is they have a divine spark. That's why we, they could be expected to fulfill the seven, the seven Noahide laws, which live to live up to their destiny and calling. And that's why the end of the Rambam, Hilchus Malachim. What does he conclude? Molot is Deus Hashem. The whole world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And the business of the world will be only to know God. This is referring also to non-Jews. Because they have that divine image. What does divine image mean? That you have a divine calling, that you have a divine component within you to fulfill God's mission in this world. Now, animals and tzemeach and chai, tzemeach and daimim are created by the divine, but you don't say they're b'tselem elikim. They don't have free will. They don't have ethical obligations to civilize the world. They follow the guidelines, the orders, the program, if you wish, the way God created them. But human beings, including non-Jews, have khir, especially in the laws and ethical laws that they're responsible for. So that's the short of it. And as I said, look up those other places where I elaborated much longer at that, on this topic. Okay. Next topic. Completely new topic. The question is, should I be bothered by my spouse speaking to people of the opposite gender? Can my wife have to do with other men? Hi, I recently got married and I love my wife and I'm very overprotective of her. It bothers me when she speaks or has anything to do with other men. It makes me feel like I'm not special and it bothers me for her to have a relationship or significant connection to any man besides family. What expectations am I allowed to have and in which cases am I asking for too much? I ask both in regards to morally and in regards to a firm couple who follow Torah and Chassidus. Okay, so I've discussed this as well. I'll give you the episodes after I answer. Uh, the answer is yes, let's begin with halacha and teda, which is, goes hand in hand with moral. When a husband and wife get married, there's a sacred, sacred relationship between them. And therefore, they're exclusive to each other and over-socializing with other, the other gender, whether it's a man with other women or a woman with other men, is not appropriate. Now, people go to work. They work with other men. So there are halachas for these matters not to be alone with anyone else, behavior that is modest, professional, but to have a social relationship or any emotional is absolutely not acceptable. Now, to really determine what is that, and let's say you know, you're working with somebody and there's a friendship there, a professional friendship, where's the line? That you'd need to talk to a rov if you have any questions, but there are lines, the Torah talks about lines of how to interact do you go out to lunch and dinner just alone or with other people at work? So there are guidelines that we have for all these matters. I'm not going to go through all the guidelines because I need to hear the situation. Generally speaking, if a spouse feels uncomfortable with the other person over-socializing with the other opposite gender, then respect for the spouse is enough reason. Now, whether there's sometimes people are over-obsessive, every little thing, you go to work and you're always jealous or always thinking what's going on there, 
So that may be the case, but that still doesn't mean that the person is doing the right thing. So if that's the case, that has to be looked at again case by case. What I would advise to the questioner here is to speak to a mashpia, to speak to someone you trust, share with them the circumstances. Also, it would be good to hear what the spouse has to say. You know, sometimes they're not aware. Sometimes they think it's nothing. Maybe it is something. And it's not, it should not be left ignored because things like this can grow and sometimes be much bigger and you start obsessing. And it's always healthy to address these matters. But not be obsessive. Really be open to hear an objective opinion, whether you're over-concerned or maybe your concerns are correct, and remedy it in a beautiful, kind, and peaceful way. Not through accusations, not through attacks, because that usually does not help. Even if it's a legitimate concern, the best way is to do this in a Torah Chesidisha way. And I look at morality in this context from a Torah perspective. I don't know what's going on in the world that's outside of Torah. They have their own standards that are not necessarily standards that I would consider moral. But we're talking from a Torah Chesidisha point of view, this is the approach to take. In episodes 33, 104 and 105, I discussed this somewhat more in detail, some more angles and more aspects to it. Okay. A, a associated question is, how much of a relationship should one have with his wife's younger sisters? Appropriate relationships regarding in-laws. How much of a relationship should a brother-in-law have with his wife's younger sisters? Uh, generally speaking, no. No relationship at all. The word relationship means some type of relationship. You are their, you are their brother-in-law. They're your sisters-in-law, so of course there's the family aspect. You see each other, cordial. But why should there be a relationship beyond that? It can only create confusion. When I say relationship, does not mean ignoring. Relationship means that you're developing relationship, you're going out or doing some other things. I have to understand what the word relationship is. But my understanding of it is that it shouldn't be a relationship. It should be, these are your wife's younger sisters, and they have their lives. You celebrate their simchas. You're invited to events and so on, but it's not personal. Now, when I say not personal, it doesn't mean it's not personal. Of course, it's like brothers and sisters, as the sisters of your wife, so it's personal to her. But it's not personal to you more than necessary. So yes, if they come and ask for help, they come for help, help me find a job. Obviously, you do that even for a stranger. But anything more than that, you know, the question itself implies more than that, you have to be very careful because there are halachas, there are laws about these matters, and you don't want to create any confusions and so on. We also know, for example, when two brothers marry two sisters, they're not even supposed to live in the same city because of confusion and so on and boundaries. So that just tells you the care that has to be taken, especially when it's family members. Okay. So one more question, then we'll do follow-up. The this question. Okay, we've got some more things to cover here. To tell. This question, again, has come in, but... I have to apologize, and I don't know if I apologize is the right word, but there are many, since we're already in episode 283, you can assume that a lot of topics have been addressed at length relatively. So though I want to address all questions, I cannot repeat everything I've said, so that's why I cross-reference. And the next one goes in that category. It's a controversial question. This is a question that has bothered me for many years. How do we explain controversial behavior by our heroes in, in Tanakh? Learning about Dovin Melch, he actually sounds, I don't want to say what the person wrote here, but it sounds like he's involved with women. I honestly find it disturbing. I think about this every time I say Tehillim on Shabbos Mavarchim. And then we have Shleim Melch with a harem of many women. How is this in any way okay? How was he allowed to build the Beis Amikdash? 
So actually, not far back, in episode 271, I addressed it relatively at length. And it's a very good question. And at the end of the day, down below, we know that Shlema Melech and David Melech were reprimanded for this. And they actually were not allowed to do certain things because of what they had done. In the Psukim, it says it was inappropriate. But at the end of the day, the tzaddikim part of them, you have to explain that that in some spiritual level, there was a certain understanding of what they were trying to do, which was not because they had sexual pleasures or they had tivus and desires, but it was for some spiritual reasons. That still does not legitimize the actual actions down below. It just means that there may have been a kavona that's a deeper kavona. Anyway, because I spoke about it, I don't want to address it again. I did want to ask the question, but please go to episode 271. I also don't like to ask a question, not answer. That's why I'm assisting to go to episode 271 and consider that just like I've said it right now. Okay. A follow-up. The follow-up I'm going to do now is on social anxiety. This was last week's episode 282. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your weekly enlightening videos. On the topic of social anxiety, you recently discussed as a shliach and a person who has social... On the top... The niggin is wrong. Let me start again. On the topic of social anxiety, you recently discussed as a shliach and a person who has social anxiety, I would like to share the following. I found myself struggling with this issue, especially during the Kinnus HaShluchim, which is coming up next week, weekend, and when coming to Crown Heights for Simchas, for celebrations, occasions. The majority of the social settings I encounter, I don't feel the anxiety as acutely because I see those people on a regular basis. When joining a yearly event, however, or when meeting with people I see infrequently, that's when the feeling of isolation coupled by anxiety takes hold. One useful tip that works for me, when entering those settings, I try to spot someone who's sitting alone, a participant whom I suspect may not know many people there, and strike up a casual conversation beginning with a smile and a friendly hello. For the vast majority of time, this seems to work for me. I feel that me being focused on making someone else feel comfortable distracts me from my own discomfort and allows me to engage in a safe social interaction at the same time, which in turn builds up my confidence. Well, thank you very much. It's an excellent suggestion. And now we include it in the canon of the discussion on social anxiety of last week's episode. With that, let us go to the Chassidus question, which is actually two questions. But I believe I'm going to move one to next week because of the time limitations. So one Chassidus question is, I'll, do, I'll address the first one and then deal with the next one. Both of them are connected to Pasha Vayera, last week's the Pasha we read yesterday. So the one is connected to Teira Eir. So the writer writes, In the Maimar Pasach from Teira Eir, which is Pasha Vayera, it says that the soul is one with the body, unites with the body, and we see it when the body gets hurt and the soul feels the pain. How do we know that it's the soul that feels the pain? Maybe it's just the body. This is the lotion that you find that nefesh mispal mimikri haguf, from the sensations of the body, the soul also feels them. That's the question. So, first of all, if there's no soul, there's no feelings. Remember that. Uh, uh, God forbid a corpse, a dead body has no feeling. So if there's pain, there's no one feeling it. Feeling is the sign of life of a soul and a body. So on a very pushato level, simple level, pain means that the soul is also part of the process. It's originating from the body. But the body 
let's even speak on a, on a scientific level, the nerves are alive and the nerves, you feel the pain and the nerves speak to the, to, through the mind to the soul. So the soul has a sensation in that sense. Even if it's not originating from the soul. But on a deeper level, if you look in the Maimorim, so this explanation, why, how is it possible the soul is affected by the body? The soul is completely uh, of a different reality. But here's the key. There's a, the, the tremendous chidush is that God put the soul into the body that they have a complete united relationship. That's how chidush brings this mimicry. That's why it's that way. So the soul on its own, you could look at it like something like sunlight, which we'll talk about in a moment. Should not be affected at all. That's why when Chassidus brings the example of Oyer and Shefa, what's the difference between Oyer and Shefa? Light and the flow. Shefa, like Ashpa, from a teacher to a student, the teacher is affected by the student, the student affects the teacher, the student is affected by the teacher. When you talk about light, let's say sunlight, sun just shines automatically. It doesn't affect the sun, it shines everywhere, it doesn't affect the sun whether the sunlight goes in a garbage pile or in a palace. So now Chassidus brings a second moshla, the moshla of a neshama baguf. That's also, the neshama radiates automatically. doesn't have to make effort. And it radiates into the body and it does not affect the, the, the soul. So if the body, for example, let's say an aver, one of the limbs, is weak, the soul is not weakened because of it, just the energy doesn't flow into it. Just like if you put up a curtain, the sun doesn't flow. And yet there's something in the Moshal with the Neshnasham, with Nefesh Beguf, the Chassidus says that the sun is better in the Moshal, it's a better Moshal regarding the idea of the detachment. But you also want to explain that the Chayas Aliki, the divine, divine energy, also enters and permeates in the Er Pnimi. And the sun is Er Makif. Er Pnimi, how do we need so this? Because we see the soul is affected by the events of the body. That's the Islapshus. The Altareb explains this in a, in a few places. Firstly, in the Kutatera Bahar 42a, in the Esophis to Vayikra, Lohoven in Yamashakosu Beitzus Chaim 52c, there's a Maimur, a beer of Eilat Matis, Tovkov Samach Beis, especially in the Hanoche of Ramesha, the second Hanoche, where it says these words that the pain of the body is felt by the mind. Some places it says it's felt by the soul. This is also cited in. Uh, in um, Sheresh, uh, we'll get to Sheresh, in, in Eda Teira Pinchas, page 1081, and Sefer Achkir of the Samar Tzedek 95a. Now, so what we have here is like this. The sun is completely detached. The neshama in the goof, the nefesh in the goof, is detached on one end because the soul does not have to make an effort and is not affected by its illuminating the body or not. And yet, there's more of deeper hislapsus because it's an air pnimi, and that's why it's affected, that the soul actually is affected and touched by the pain or all the sensations of the body. And then, of course, there's a hislapsus that's completely like shefa, which it's completely impacted. So in a sense, nefesh and guf is a muscle that explains one dimension of how the divine interacts with existence that has a, 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 something that the sun example doesn't work well for, and the opposite, the sun example works better in a different area, as I explained. Now, Sheresh Mitzvah interestingly, he says the following. He says the following. He brings this concept, this is in chapter uh, 34 in Sheresh Mitzvah page 136b. So he brings uh, that, uh, that, 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 
that when it's not just a ha'ara alone, even though the etzim of the neshama is not affected, so it's not just that the, the part of the soul that influences the body, that energizes the body, is not just a reflection like sunlight. It's more hashpa, it's more like shefa, because it, 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 it's invested. So these words, It's not only a reflection. Then the soul would not be affected that much by the sensations of the body. Because by Ha'ar, it's not that way. Something that's just a reflection of light is not affected by the place where it's shining. And too, if the soul was just light, it's not that way. So in that sense, the soul is more, more invested and more involved, I should say. Involved is the right word. But then he goes on to say the following. That this dovet still needs explanation. You still need explanation. Because even by how other there's changes according to the caliph. For example, if the window is open or if the window is closed, it put up curtains and so on. So you could still say the shenuim are mitzad the kalim, not mitzad the nefesh. masha nefesh Canal. So he's basically saying that from the fact that the nefesh is affected by the pain or the sensations of the body, tell you it's not just a reflection. So you see here that this is something that needs more explanation. I will also add that there seems to be somewhat of also another explanation that may be contradiction even in another Maimarim in Samachvav. In the beginning of Kol Hashem Aloch is Tafre Samach Zayin, and also Vayelach Samach Vov, which is actually the from Eretz Yonim, page one seventy six, and also Eretz Yonim, page one forty seven, one forty eight. And what does it say there? There it says something very different. That that when we say the nefesh is affected, the spirit, the soul is affected by the sensations of the body, is only the faculties of the nefesh. But not the fact that the etzim hanefesh is connected to the body is something equal and does not have any changes. That's what it says there. So there you could say that the interpretation is more not that the nefesh is the faculties of the soul that are affected. As I said, this needs more iyun, but this is some of the information. The second question of uh, was about the maimer isha achas, so I'll address that next week. Let me do the, the three essays now. We always conclude with the three essays of Essay Contest 2019. So the first one is Big God and Little Me. Hindi Litvin, age 17, Atlanta, Georgia, a student in Lubavitch Girls High School, Chicago. A vast desert stretches endlessly before him. The same scenery stretches in all directions for miles, she begins. His forehead shines with perspiration and his parched mouth yearns for a drink of water. And he turns up to heaven and says, help me find my way, God. Help me find a way to get out of this desert. This is an analogy for and continues, I'm sorry, I have to conclude the analogy. So finally, even though after beginning to doubt whether God will answer to his prayers, he sees a village ahead. He notices a commotion. Turning to the first person he met, he asked what had happened. A group of travelers just came to our village a few hours ago. They had been traveling through the desert when a group of bandits attacked them. They were beaten and robbed of everything. The lost traveler was shocked. He realized that that was his group. 
the group he had been separated from. He had been spared from terrible tragedy. So goes on basically discuss that sometimes feels a terrible situation, and in truth, there's a lot of good within it. How do we find good in that life, even when it doesn't seem that way? Looking at the intention of things, looking at the deeper purpose and meaning, and the power of prayer to reveal that deeper good. That's the gist of it, with a practical conclusion. Okay, next essay is cultivating an identity within the framework of Chassidus, Avakit, age 17 as well, Los Angeles, California, student Earl Chana High School, Los Angeles. We're all on a lifelong journey of figuring out who exactly we are, what speaks to us, and what we identify with. But what does Chassidus say, what does Chassidus say about cultivating a healthy self-identity, one that expresses our individuality without curtailing our potential? The objective of this essay is to demonstrate how Hasidic philosophy provides powerful tools for embarking upon this, the lifelong journey of self-discovery and personal growth. More specifically, this essay will outline how cultivating an identity within the framework of Hasidus is not an oxymoron, but an attainable reality. And she goes on to do this exactly that, using the Kinnush HaShluchim as an example, talking about identity within the context of Hasidus. Well done, very original, very interesting. And of course, leading us to the soul and the essence of the soul, Yechidah Shebenefesh. Beautiful essay. And finally, essay number three for today. It's not about you. Mendy Halberstam, age 37, Miami Beach, Florida. It's a misnomer. Applied chassidus or practical chassidus is one and the same thing. Is there really such a thing as chassidus which is not practical, but is instead theoretical hypothesis regarding Hashem and spirituality? I think not. And goes on to basically do exactly that, take chassidus and explain how it is relevant to each one of our lives. And using Tanya as an example, different themes in Tanya, this essay comes down to that it's not all about you that there's something greater that we have to live up to. And that's not just a theory, it's a practical way that affects your world in every aspect of it. Another well-done essay, as the other two are. So thank you for that. So with that, we conclude this week's episode 283 of My Life Chassidus Applied. Everyone should have a very happy Chav Cheshven. Let's celebrate the Rebbe Rashab and Chassidus in general. And um, we should, and should finally be Zeche, even before Chav Cheshven. As Mashiach told about Shem Tov, Osimar Domalka Mashiach, that's when he will come. We are here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And chsidasupply.com is where you can find all the information. As I mentioned at the outset, you now can also subscribe to our WhatsApp group, a new WhatsApp group created specifically for this Chsidis Applied, My Life Chsidis Applied program. Everyone be blessed and have a very good week. Thank you.